everyone. Um, the first Bible reading for tonight comes from Genesis chapter 48, um, starting at verse 1. On my Bible, it's on page 54. So Genesis chapter 48. Sometime later, Joseph was told, your father is ill. So he took his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, along with him. When Jacob was told, your son Joseph has come to you, Israel rallied his strength and sat up on the bed. Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan, and there he blessed me and said to me, I'm going to make you fruitful and will increase your numbers. I'll make you a community of peoples, and I'll give this land as an everlasting possession to your descendants after you. Now then, your two sons born to you in Egypt before I came to you here will be reckoned as mine. Ephraim and Manasseh will be mine, just as Reuben and Simeon are mine. Any children born to you after they will be yours. In the territory they inherit, they will be reckoned under the names of their brothers. As I was returning from Paddan, to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan while we were still on the way, a little distance from Ephrath. So I buried her there beside the road to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. When Israel saw the sons of Joseph, he asked, Who are these? They are the sons God has given me here, Joseph said to his father. Then Israel said, Bring them to me so I may bless them. Now Israel's eyes were failing because of old age, and he could hardly see. So Joseph brought his sons close to him, and his father kissed them and embraced them. Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face again, and now God has allowed me to see your children too. Then Joseph removed them from Israel's knee and bowed down with his face to the ground. And Joseph took both of them, Ephraim on his right towards Israel's left hand, and Manasseh on his left towards Israel's right hand, and brought them close to him. But Israel reached out his right hand and put it on Ephraim's head, though he was the younger, and crossing his arms, he put his left hand on Manasseh's head, even though Manasseh was the firstborn. Then he blessed Joseph and said, May the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has delivered me from all harm, May he bless these boys. May they be called by my name and the names of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac. And may they increase greatly upon the earth. When Joseph saw his fathers placing his right hand on Ephraim's head, he was displeased. So he took hold of his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. Joseph said to him, No, my father, this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He too will become a people, and he too will become great. Nevertheless, his younger brother will be greater than he, and his descendants will become a group of nations. He blessed them that day and said, In your name will Israel pronounce this blessing. May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. So he put Ephraim ahead of Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, I'm about to die, but God will be with you and take you back to the land of your fathers. And to you, as one who is over your brothers, I give the ridge of land I took from the Amorites with the sword and my bow. 
This is the word of the Lord. Um, good evening. Um, second Bible reading uh, this evening comes from Genesis, Genesis chapter 49, verses 28 to 33, and then we go to chapter 50, verses 15 to 26. On the screen. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel, and this is what their father said to them when he blessed them, giving each the blessing appropriate to him. Then he gave them the instructions I am about to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave in the field of Ephron the Hittite, the cave in the field of Machpelah near Mamre in Canaan which Abraham bought as a burial place from Ephron the Hittite, along with the field. There Abraham and his wife Sarah were buried. There Isaac and his wife Rebekah were buried. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob had finished giving instructions to his sons, he drew his feet up into the bed, breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. So now we'll move to... um, When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph, saying, Your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph stayed in Egypt along with all his father's family. He lived 110 years and saw the third generation of Ephraim's children. Also the children of Machir, son of Manasseh, were placed at birth on Joseph's knees. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die. But God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Joseph made the sons of Israel swear an oath and said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up from this place. So Joseph died at the age of 110, and after they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. May God bless this reading. Thanks, Rachel, for that reading. Well, firstly, I want to say well done for persevering through the whole of Genesis. Uh, 50 chapters, we finish it tonight, three chapters tonight. Well done for persevering. And it's important because these are, this book is foundational to uh, who we are as Christians, what we know about God and our faith. So well done for persevering. But let's come to God in prayer, asking for his help, that we might understand these three chapters today. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your word to us. We praise you that you did not remain silent, but you've revealed yourself in history. We thank you, Lord, for these words recorded down for us to know about you 
and to know about your plans for us. And we pray that tonight you might help us to see you at work in this passage and help us to respond appropriately. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, what are your hopes in life? What do you hope for? What are your hopes at the moment? Well, I suspect that for many of us, our hope at the moment is perhaps to have an easy, quiet, relaxing Christmas time. Perhaps our hope at the moment is when we have those Christmas lunches and dinners with family, that it won't be too strange or too weird. You know, when we, when we meet again those cousins who marry to each other, that it won't be too weird. Or when we, we, we meet that auntie who always squeezes our cheeks, yeah, that it won't be too strange. Or when we meet that uncle again who wears the same, same T-shirt each year with sweat around his armpits who has some odor, it won't be too strange. Perhaps that's our hope at the moment, that this Christmas time will be a joyful time, won't be too strange. But I suspect for many of us, we have bigger hopes than that, don't we? Bigger hopes than that. And I, I suspect that these hopes are hopes that are formed and shaped by our society as the VCE results come out tomorrow. What are our, our hopes there? How has this society influenced what we hope for? Well, I suspect things like our career, that we will end up with a great career, one that especially pays well, so that we'll have a good life, that we'll have wealth and status. Perhaps those are our hopes, our hopes in life. Well, whatever they might be, I want us to realize how good we actually have it here in Australia. We actually have it extremely well. We're an extremely well-off country. If you think about it, we've got free health care. Uh, we've got free education. We've got a great welfare system. Um, we've got uh, a great justice system. We've got, really, got it really well here in Australia, in Melbourne. And several months ago, there was an article that says that Melbourne is, in fact, the most livable city in the world. Can you believe that? We live in the most livable city in the world. We actually have it really good. You know, we might hope for things in our life, but the reality is that we actually have it really good already. And we only come to realize how good we have it, I suspect, when we visit another country, when we visit a third world country. Do you know that 3 billion people in the world live on less than $2.50 a day? Less than $2.50 a day. We spend that without thinking. One billion children in the world live in poverty. Last year I went to Bali. It was meant to be a holiday, and it was somewhat a holiday, but, but there were things that I saw on the streets where we live that distressed me. People there live on an average of $5 a day. In fact, that's all they make. Imagine feeding a family, looking after, trying to bring up your children on $5 a day. We spend that without thinking here in Australia. We have it so good here. Uh, a movie ticket now costs about three times what the average salary of a person in Bali is. Crazy, isn't it? So we have it so good here. And in a sense, the story that we're looking at today, Jacob and his family, they have it really good as well. Just consider where they came from. They came from Canaan. There was a famine there. There wasn't enough, not enough to go around. But now they come to Egypt. And they have plenty, just like we have plenty here in Australia. 
They went to Egypt. They have plenty. They have the, the choicest food. They have the choice land. Pharaoh gave them the land of Goshen, a fertile land. They were given that. And not only that, Jacob's own son, uh, he, he, his 11th son, is the prime minister of this superpower. How good can you have it? Well, they have it really good. They have it really good. Uh, the prime ministers, just imagine the perks of a prime minister. Our prime minister, she gets a chauffeured car to drive around. Back then, well, they would have camels, stacks of them, to take them around. All the perks. And so this family, Jacob, ending up in Egypt, it was a good thing, a good life. And so when we look at this story, we think, what more could they ask for? They're in Egypt, in the superpower. Their, their son, Jacob's son, is the second most powerful man in the nation. What more could they hope for? And so today, as we consider these last three chapters, we're going to think about what hope is there for this family that has so much already. They have so much already. What more could they hope for? And so let us turn to this passage now. Now, this passage focuses on the, the, pretty much the end of Jacob's life. Jacob, he's old, he's on his deathbed, he's about to die, and he does two things over these three chapters, just two things. Firstly, he gives his blessings. Secondly, he gives some instructions to his sons. So two things, blessings and instructions. So what are these blessings? Well, you notice in our first reading, uh, Joseph, he's hearing that his father's about to die. He brings his two sons along, uh, Manasseh and Ephraim. They come to Jacob, and Jacob here does something quite remarkable, quite strange, quite surprising, in fact. Well, what Jacob does was he adopts the sons of Joseph as his own sons. That's strange, isn't it? So his grandsons become his sons. And what that means is these, the, his grandsons, these two, Ephraim and Manasseh, they in fact get the same rights as his own sons, the other 11 sons. Now, why would Jacob do that? It's strange, isn't it? Why would he do that it, to, to tell Joseph, now your two sons, they're not your sons anymore, they're mine sons. Why does he do that? We well, see, Jacob here was making a declaration. He was proclaiming Joseph as the heir, as the firstborn the one who will receive the double blessing. And that's what, in fact, happens. His two sons receives the same portion as all the other sons, and it means that Joseph gets a double blessing. He is considered the heir. So, so Jacob's final words to his, son, to his sons was that Joseph is the heir. He's the one who gets it good. And as I was reading this, I was thinking, you know, what will I do when I pass away one day, my three kids... Esther, my firstborn, she's a girl, she gets nothing. <laughs> Caleb, he's my firstborn son. Well, he'll get the double share, and Ethan Hill, he'll get the rest. Uh, it's not true, right? We won't do that. Maybe we'll give Esther the coffee machine or something. But, but this was how it worked. The firstborn son would get the double portion. And so Jacob here was saying to Joseph, you're the heir now. Though you're 11th in line, you're the heir. You get the double portion. So he blesses Ephraim and Manasseh, and he does something strange again. He, in fact, blesses the younger one above the older one, blesses Ephraim over Manasseh. This guy's got that favoritism happening again. But it's a pattern we see throughout Genesis already. You know, uh, Isaac was favored above Ishmael, Jacob above Esau, Joseph above his brothers, and now 
Ephraim above Manasseh. So after adopting the sons of Joseph uh, uh, as his own sons, he then calls the other 11 sons, and he blesses them one by one. He goes by name one by one and gives them their blessing. In fact, he goes through the first three, Reuben, the firstborn, uh, Simeon, and Levi, those three, they, they, there's re- really no blessing for them. They, they actually get some bad news. But in chapter 49, the focus is on Joseph and Judah. Joseph, well, we already know now he's the heir. He's the one with the double blessing. But then there's this focus on Judah. Now, remember Judah. He was this strange guy who earlier on, he had twins with his daughter-in-law. Remember him? Strange guy who did some funny things. But he gets special mention here. And we actually see the, the result of this throughout the Old Testament. Judah gets a special, special mention. So at this stage, Joseph was the leader amongst his brothers. But Jacob is saying eventually Judah will become the leader amongst the tribes. He will come up and become the leader. And we actually see this in the history of Israel. After Solomon uh, uh, sinned and the kingdom was split in two, Do you know what the northern kingdom was known as? Northern kingdom was known as Israel or Ephraim. That was the son of Joseph, the one who was blessed above his brother. That became the dominant dominant tribe. And the southern kingdom was known as Judah. So that's what's happening here. So Judah gives his blessing. Special mention to uh, Jacob gives his blessing, in fact. And special mention is given to Judah. Now these blessings to Judah, in fact, Extremely special. But if we think back, about, uh, think back to the blessings given to Abraham, Abraham was promised that kings will come from him. Kings will come from him. Now we're given the clue of where the kings will come from. So in verse 10, 49, 10, he says to Judah, The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs. And obedience of the nations is his. So you see here, we get a glimpse of where the kings will come from, from the tribe of Judah. So that's the first thing Jacob does. He does his blessings. He's about to die. He gives his blessings. The second thing now, he gives his sons some instructions on what to do with his body once he dies. So he said to them, don't leave me in Egypt. When I die, bury me with my fathers in the cave that Abraham bought in Canaan. So that was his instruction to his sons. Don't bury me here. Bury me in Canaan. And so Jacob dies, and he's given this this funeral before pomp and ceremony, a funeral fitting of, of a king. And so that's what they did. They buried him in Canaan. And then we come to the end of Genesis, chapter 50. We see something similar happen with Joseph. Joseph now is 110 years old. He's about to die. And what was his request of his brothers? He got them to swear that they will take his bones from Egypt to Canaan when they leave. He's already anticipating that they will not have a future there. And so he wants them to take their bones out of Egypt to Canaan. So that's quite briefly our story. Okay, Three chapters Two big things, the blessings and the instructions. Blessings to the sons and the instructions that Jacob had and Joseph had. 
So let's think about this. What's, what's going on here? Now, do you notice that in this story, though they had it so good, Judah's son is the prime minister. They would have enjoyed a lavish life. All the good stuff. They had their own land. They enjoyed the, the best of the land. And so if you think about that, what more could they hope for? Things were good for this family in Egypt. But yet there are clues, two clues in this story that suggest that they actually hoped for more. They had a higher hope. It wasn't good enough that they were in Egypt. It wasn't good enough that Joseph was the prime minister. They had hoped for more. And the clue here for that is in that second bit that happened. Jacob wanted to be in Canaan. Joseph also wanted to be in Canaan. Now, why is that? Why did they? Why is this the way that Genesis ends? Well, you see, they wanted to be in Canaan because they are remembering the promises of God. It was not about Egypt. The promises of God, the great promises of God to Abraham, great, great name, a, a, a name of uh, that will become great, as numerous as the stars in the sky. They'll have land. They'll become uh, a father of many nations, father of kings. You see, all those wonderful promises of God were tied to being in Canaan, not in Egypt. And so you see, though they enjoyed life in Egypt, it was good. They had high hopes, and their hopes were in the promises of God. There was more than what they were enjoying. There was more to look forward to. And so that's what happened at the end of this story. It gives us a clue that, though the story is finishing here, they had high hopes. How will God go about fulfilling these wonderful promises? And, but then, now you need to think about, if they had these high hopes, and the situation is actually not that, it's, it's, it's good, they're enjoying the riches of being in Egypt, but yet at the same time, those promises were not being fulfilled. They're not in Canaan. They're not really that numerous. There are about 70 of them. Their name is not exactly that great. Though Joseph being the prime minister, that is a great thing. How can they continue to trust in God? How is it possible that they can still have this hope that God will fill his promises, fulfill his promises? Well, you see, Joseph, through his experience in life, he got to see that God can work even when people are wicked. Look at what Joseph says in, in Genesis 50. His brothers, they were worried that Joseph's going to take out revenge, going to get them back after the father died. But this is what Joseph says. He said, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. You see, Joseph, though he had a good, he could see that God's promises were not fulfilled, but yet he could continue to trust God because he could see that God can still work good even when people are wicked. You see, when people do wicked things and God can still do good, it means that nothing can really stuff up God's plan. And Joseph knew that. And so he had high hopes than what they had. As good as it might be, he had higher hopes. And so the question I want to ask us tonight is, what is it that we hope for? What is it that we hope for? Joseph... Jacob, they had it well in Egypt, but both of them had high hopes, hopes in God's promises. What is it that we hope for? 
Life is pretty good in Australia. It's very good in Australia. And we do have hopes. Hopes of that career, perhaps. Those results, perhaps. The wealth, the status, perhaps. But you see, there are higher hopes than those things. And if those are the things that we hope for, there's no guarantee that we'll get them. God never promises that when you become a Christian, all your hopes will be fulfilled. God promises the greater hope. And that's a hope we see throughout Genesis. The hope of this promised one, this promised one who will come, who will restore restore the world, turn chaos into order, who will deal with evil, who will overthrow death. You see, that's the promise that's been going out throughout Genesis. So if we quickly have a look, back in Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, remember Eve, when she was punished, God said to her, a seed of you, an offspring of you, will crush the serpent's head. God already promises there that, that there will be someone who will come from her descendant that will destroy evil. And then when we get to Abraham, we find out that this seed will be coming from Abraham's line. And now today we find out that this seed is in fact a king from the tribe of Judah. You see, these promises are the things that we can hope in. These are the things that are promised by God. And these things we see eventually fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He's the one from Abraham, the one from Judah, the king who will come. He's the one who will deal with evil and has in fact done that. Deal with death. And he is the one who gives us a proper relationship with God. Bring about this new creation that, in fact, Genesis was looking forward to. And so you see, there is a greater hope than the things we hope for in life. The things we hope for in life, they're fleeting. Things will end. Things will not last. And they're not even promised. But this hope that God promises us will be achieved, has been in chief effect in effect, through Jesus. And how was it achieved? Well, I mentioned this several weeks ago. I want you to look at this. What Joseph came to realize, that God can work good even when people are wicked, well, that happened ultimately at the cross of Christ. In Acts chapter chapter 2, Peter says, This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. People are wicked. People are evil. But yet in that same event, God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. In the ultimate display of human wickedness, God worked good. And that is the hope that we can have, that through this Jesus, there will be a new creation. There will be life for us in heaven. That is the greater hope that we can all have. And so I want to end with a story about this guy. Not sure if you heard of him, Horatio Spafford. This was a guy who came to realize this, that there is a higher hope than the things we might hope for in this life. This guy was a lawyer from Chicago. He was a prominent lawyer in in the 1860s well-known for his legal career, for his business endeavors. This was a guy who, in a sense, had it all. He had it all. He had the fame, had the fortune, had a wonderful family. But if his hope was tied to those things, well, look at what happened. In 1870, 
His four-year-old son died from, from, from a fever, from scarlet fever. That's in 1970. And then the year after that, in, I mean, sorry, 1870. And in 1871, his investments in the real estate by the Lake of Michigan, they were all burnt down in the Chicago fire. All gone. His investments, and he lost his son. If you think about that, if his hope was tied to his career, his wealth, well, at that point, it was hopeless for him. But things went from bad to worse for him. Now, this toll on the family was pretty, pretty severe. And so he suggested that his family go on a holiday to England. And so they prepared their way to New York to catch a ship over to England. But, but just on that day, minutes before they took off, he had this business development that forced him to stay back. And so he persuaded his wife and four daughters to go anyway. He didn't want to ruin their holiday. And so they went off east towards Europe. And on their way, something happened. Well, nine days later, Spafford, he received a telegram in the mail. And the telegram was from his wife in Wales. And he read, saved alone. And that's because on the 2nd of November in 1873, the ship that the family sailed on, it collided with another ship. And the four daughters passed away. They died in that tragedy. 226 people died in that tragedy. And it was recorded that Anna, this mother, holding tightly to her four daughters. But it was hopeless. The four daughters passed away. So you think about this, pretty hopeless situation for this family losing a son, losing their wealth, and losing their four daughters. Now, it's recorded that she said these words when she was rescued. She said, It's easy to be grateful and good when you have so much, but take care that you are not a fair-weathered friend to God. When she was rescued, that's what what she said. And so what did this Horatio Spafford do? Well, he caught the next ship, boarded the next ship, of New York to England. And as they sailed, they sailed over that same path. And the captain of the ship, he asked Baffert to come up to the bridge, and he said this to him. He said, a careful reckoning has been made, and I believe we are now passing the place where the Dehav was wrecked, where that ship was destroyed. And the water here is three miles deep. And on that spot, when that ship was wrecked, collided. Horatio, he went to his cabin and he penned down these lyrics. He penned down these because he had a higher hope, not the hope in his career, not the hope in his wealth. He had a higher hope and he penned down these words. It is well with my soul when, re- when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, Though has taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ hath regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. So why is it helpful knowing this? You see, we might have all sorts of hopes in life, but they're all fleeting. This is the high hope that we can all have and is not fleeting. Horatio had this high hope. He knew that one day he will be with Christ. He knew that one day he will see his four daughters 
and his son again. This is the high hope that he had to live with, the perspective on life that he had. And so I want to end with this question. Where does your hope lie? In the things of this world or in the things of God? Well, let me encourage you. There is no higher hope than this, and we shouldn't settle with anything less. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you give us this amazing hope that through your son Jesus, we can be confident that one day we'll see you once again. We'll see all our brothers and sisters in Christ once again. And we pray, Lord, that you help us to live this way, not hoping in the things of this world, but hoping in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.